You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I will be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags, to the nation's iconic landscapes, and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 12 of the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. For this month's episode, I got to sit down and have a chat with founder of Flash Foxy, Shelma June. Shelma's not only the founder of Flash Foxy, she also sits on the board of the Access Fund and has for the last two and a half years. And I was quite moved by her conversa- by our conversation. It was, uh, it was quite powerful, and she shed some light on, on some great things that are happening these days in the outdoor space, in the, in the conservation field as a whole. And uh, like I said, it was, it was pretty powerful, and Shelma's definitely making some waves in the pool. Overall, over the past couple of weeks, I felt just pretty moved by everything that's been happening in the environmental world between everything I learned from Shelma during this conversation and the climate strike, climate march, there's some big things happening. And I, I do finally feel that the needle is beginning to shift the other direction with these important topics being brought up um, all the way to the top with millions of people behind it. During our conversation, we chatted, of course, about what she's probably best known for, her founding at Flash Foxy and how it started and how it's seemed to grow just overnight to what it is today. So we jumped into that, and she went through all that and what her climbing festivals look like and everything else that involves women in climbing. And then we segued into her time as a board member with the Access Fund. She brings a very diverse set of skills to that board, and I'm sure they're very grateful to have her there. So we jumped into that and talked about her time on, on Capitol Hill in D.C., over this last week with the Climb the Hill event that the Access Fund joins up with the American American Alpine Club on to talk to lawmakers about all things policy-related that relates to climbing. We also talked about this thing called the JEDI Task Force. It's a, it's a new newer thing. It's, it's an acronym, JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I've typically known, known it as DEI, but I'm really, um, really excited about this new acronym that they can use in task force. It sounds so powerful. And so they walked into D.C., talked to lawmakers with this lens on to talk about conservation policy and a lot of other things. So I hope you are moved, as moved as I was, and really take a lot away from this conversation as I did. So without any further ado, let's just let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Selma June. All right. Thanks for joining me this morning, Shelma. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you. All right. Yeah, I know you've been really busy the past couple of months. I'm glad we got to get this chance to sit down and have this chat. I know. It was a little bit of a struggle to get this scheduled. I'm really excited we finally got a chance to um, to sit and talk as well. Yeah, yeah. It's often the crux of doing these episodes. It's like the conversations go great. 
putting the, the together the agenda goes great, but actually, you know, scheduling it, that seems to be the hardest part. Everyone's so busy these days. So, all right. Um, let's get started here with some basic information. I just want to know like where you're from and uh, how you ended up in New York. I know you've kind of bounced around the country a little bit. Can you give us a little background on that? Yeah. So um, I was born in Korea, in South Korea, in Seoul, and my family immigrated to the States when I was four years old to California. I grew up in Southern California and I went to college at UCLA. And then I kind of bounced around a little bit in California. I was in the Eastern Sierras for a while in LA, San Francisco, and then kind of back in LA um, to get my master's in urban planning. And then I moved to New York uh, a little over eight years ago and I travel quite a bit for work, but this has been my home base since then. Nice. So you moved to New York for, for work purposes? Uh, yeah. Well, um, my partner was getting a PhD at NYU. So that cool. was, and I was looking for a job in urban planning anyway. So it seemed like a good opportunity. New York has a lot of uh, really good community initiatives. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. And that, that's what you're doing for your day job? No, that's what I was doing for my day, day was, job. Was doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> that's what I was doing for about four years. And I actually quit my full-time job almost four years ago, right before the first women's climbing festival. And since then, um, I work, uh, on flash Foxy. I've also been, um, starting to make films in the last year and, uh, kind of doing a lot of consulting and doing whatever I kind of need to, to, uh, figure it out. It's a little bit of a Tetris. Well, (laughs) I, I totally hear that. Um, well, that's really cool that you could make Flash Foxy your pretty much your full-time job or pretty close and filmmaking. Uh, did you have, have you had any previous experience doing that or did you just kind of jump right in? Uh, I kind of just jumped right in, but um, <laughs> I think the way that I made it work is that I was able to partner with some really amazing uh, women who work in film that uh, had much more experience than me. Um, and they really were uh, crucial into helping me to fulfill my vision for some of these films I've been working on. Nice. What is your current, do you have a current project right now? Uh, so I had a project come out. My first film that I directed came out in June and it was a short film for REI about a woman named Aisha McGowan, who's training to become the first female African American professional road cyclist. Nice. Um, and then I co-directed a film about a recent trip to Korea that I did uh, this past spring. And that was a film made for Arteryx, which is one of my partners. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I have a couple more things I'd like to do next year, but they're kind of still in the works. Cool. All right. Well, I'll be sure to link those uh, those links up in the show notes so everyone can check those out. I've seen some pictures and, and stuff uh, and of Korea, of climbing Korea recently, and it looks really, really cool. Yeah, there's some really fantastic um, granite climbing. I think there's other stuff too, but I spent most of my time focusing on checking out um, some of the granite areas in the northern part. Nice. Is that is that sport, trad? Uh, mostly trad. Nice. Right on. Awesome. And in addition to all those endeavors you have, you're also a board member for the Access Fund. I am. I was just uh, at Climb the Hill last week, and mm-hmm. uh, it was surprising to think I've been a board member for already two and a half years. It's gone by really quick. Yeah. 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 I'm sure you're getting amazing work done. I mean, all the, yeah, your diverse set of skills, I'm sure is, is bringing a lot of importance to their board. Thank you. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your personal climbing history? You kind of found climbing through a silver lining of sorts after you got injured snowboarding, right? Yeah. Well, um, I had had a recurring shoulder injury, um, where 
it was actually starting to dislocate while I was sleeping. I would wake up because oh my, my shoulder had fallen out of my socket. Um, <laughs> and so th- at that point, it kind of seemed like there was a, a quality of life issue. <laughs> so I ended up um, having surgery, and that was in uh, 2000. I want to say 2008, no, mm-hmm. yeah, 2008, uh, when I was living in San Francisco. And I couldn't uh, do anything where I fell and impacted my shoulder for at least two years. And at that time, I was snowboarding and mountain biking and so and skateboarding. So those kind of were all off the table. And a mm-hmm. girlfriend of mine invited me to go rock climbing at the gym, kind of letting me know that if you top roped and you fell, you wouldn't really fall. You'd only fall about one one inch of rope stretch. And uh, that was kind of my first introduction to climbing. I really liked it, but I was actually just on my way to grad school, which kind of took over my entire life for two years. And so when I moved to New York, I knew it was something that was kind of in the back of my mind as something I really wanted to pursue. So ironically, you know, I grew up in California. I didn't really get into rock climbing (laughs) until I moved to New York City. Mm -hmm. But you know, the legendary gunks is just a couple hours away. So you had a, yeah, yeah, dove in head first, which is like really cool. Cause the gunks I've, you know, when I was in New York for the access fund summit last year, I mean, you got everything from like five zero to five fourteen. I mean, like on vertical rock, it's amazing. Yeah. I think the gunks is one of the best places to learn to trad climb because there are um, so many high quality, easy and moderate routes. Yep. You're not really settling because you're doing a five, four, you're, you're still blown away by the exposure and the movement. So um, you can still, you can learn on much easier and moderate uh, terrain while still enjoying the rock climbing. So it was a perfect place to learn sure. except for um, having to learn to crack climb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am. I'm used to like vertical cracks being out West. So those, those horizontal cracks were a whole new game for me, but I had a great tour guide. Chris Feltaggio showed me around and showed me all the best routes and had a wonderful time. And I'm really excited to get back there. Yeah, Chris is great. Yeah, he's the man. <laughs> he knows the area inside and out. He does. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's dive into Flash Foxy, the thing you probably are most known for. Can you give us a quick snapshot of what it is or what it started out as? Because, I mean, I feel like overnight it just completely blew up. Yeah. Uh, Flash Foxy is a women's climbing organization that um, it's kind of hard to say exactly when I started it because it didn't really start as an organization. It started as an Instagram to post pictures of me and my girlfriends rock climbing just to um, celebrate this group of women uh, that I had found to climb together and to learn together with. And, you know, it really started to get uh, um, to catch attention and we started to get a lot of followers and I would say it really kind of took off into the beginning of what it is now probably in the summer of 2015 when we announced the first women's climbing festival Mm -hmm. where we got a huge response which was really really unexpected Um, and that was kind of when there was a realization that this could really become a vehicle to bring women together on the ground and not just uh, be a place for women to come together digitally and that kind of culminated with our first women's climbing festival in Bishop in 2016. And now you have two festivals a year. We do. We have one in Bishop in March and one in Chattanooga uh, in October. So we have one actually just a month away from today. Yeah, that's awesome. And how long was it before, I guess, between when you started climbing and the creation of Flash, Flash Foxy? Was that what, like eight years or something? 
Mm, not really, because I didn't really start rock climbing until I moved to New York. I had not even really climbed outside. So I guess I started climbing at the end of 2011. So just a few years then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you took like your love for climbing, I mean, and took it to a whole other level where you could really give back. Yeah. You recognized a need there for this platform pretty quickly. I mean, were you having negative experiences or were you just witnessing some negative experiences or was it a combination of both? I think it was a combination. I mean, I think it was a couple different things. It was one, you know, growing up a woman, a woman in our society, I think we are inundated with uh, sexist or misogynist behavior kind of in all different parts of our life, whether we're walking down the street or it can occasionally be, you know, um, in social situations or even at work or at school or at the gym. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, I had spent my, I had grown up participating in a lot of male dominated sports and kind of had seen some of the negative interactions that it had fostered between women. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think it also stems from my community organizing background. I worked uh, providing technical assistance to community-based organizations mm-hmm. um, in New York City with a nonprofit that worked in community-based design work. So I think that gave me a really natural kind of um, progression into the work that I'm doing now. So with these events that you host, you got two a year now. That's that's great how it's grown so quickly. I imagine the stoke and the camaraderie at these events is, is just out of this world. What kind of conversations do you overhear sometimes between the women at these at the at the events? Is there has there been like really inspiring moments at these events that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, I think if you read some of the early press that we received, I think a lot of it, women are referring to kind of this energy that we can't quite put our finger on. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to do with um, kind of the joy of being in a, in a unfamiliar space that we might not have experienced before mm-hmm. of, of um, support and excitement and kind of the lack of maybe some of the pressure, social pressures that we might have felt in other situations And um, I think, you know, there's a lot of different pieces that kind of stand out to me throughout the years that uh, I hold really dearly. I think things like um, women who've never climbed outside before, who come out and climb outside for the first time and have a really positive experience. Uh, Women who've never, um, you know, uh, been on a rope before coming out. Uh, Women who have met at the festival and have become friends and have been climbing together now and come back to the festival together is a story that I've heard that uh, I think is really amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the other side, women who've worked with me that I continue to work with on the festival as well as other projects and women um, who've connected through the festival and working together on separate projects themselves as well. For me, it's not, you know, the participant experience is really only one part of our goals for the Women's Climbing Festival, really developing a network of support for the women who are part of the industry, uh, guides, athletes, um, mm-hmm. physical therapists, nutritionists, kind of everybody, and providing a way for us to all work together as well. It's been um, always one of our main goals as well. That's awesome. That's something to be so proud of. What you were saying earlier about just the way you're treated, whether you're in the gym or walking down the street, I mean, that's something that I'm not proud of. And I love the work that you're doing too bridge this gap and, and break down those barriers, so to speak. I also wanted to touch on your holistic approach in creating and hosting these events. Like you just mentioned, 
there's more than just one purpose of these climbing events. It's also about the land, uh, the businesses, the agencies, the organizations, and these other partners that you're working with, and also about stewardship of the land where these events are taking place. Can you touch a little base about uh, the stewardship projects and stuff that you all are working on during the events? Yeah, so we definitely want to look at these events as holistic. Um, we work really closely with a lot of local partners and businesses and agencies. A lot of our land managers, we have great relationships with them. Um, and we also have been working really closely with the tribal council in Bishop, where there is a, a, a local uh, reservation and active tribe. And, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of within all of these things is also the big stewardship component. You know, we a lot of the women who often come to the festival have never been climbing outside before. And we really want to set a really uh, a good standard from the very beginning saying, Hey, we're here, especially as a crowd of, of several hundred people, we're making an impact. And we definitely want to make sure that if we are doing that, we're recognizing that we're making an impact and we're making sure that we are giving back through stewardship and acknowledgement of stewardship and conservation policies so we actually host a really large stewardship project on the Sunday of every festival on the last day. Um, we usually have anywhere from like 90 to 130 women that come out for our stewardship projects. We work really closely with our land managers in Bishop or the Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Forest Service. We work closely with uh, Access Fund. They always send out one of their conservation crews, a local conservation organization called Friends Vineyard Bishop Climbers Coalition. And then in Chattanooga, mm-hmm. we work closely with uh, Land Conservancy um, and with the Southeastern Climbers Coalition and Access Fund as well to make sure that we're uh, not only creating a stewardship opportunity, but we're really thinking strategically about like, what's the biggest impact we can make. We have like a hundred women, we have a hundred people, hundred bodies, right? Right, right? And that is not a really common occurrence when it comes to stewardship projects. So um, where is the biggest impact that we can make with the, with the opportunity that we have here? Yeah, that's very, just being very proactive and not letting someone else clean up after you all. And yeah, having a hundred, a hundred bodies volunteering at one time is, I don't know, is it kind of unheard of? I mean, that's, that's, like you said, that's a lot of people. Yeah. We feel really lucky that um, so many women come out to, and they're excited to uh, come out and pick up a shovel or a pick or, or learn new conservation skills too. You know, Um, I think there is a joy of learning to use a net to move a really big rock and set it into a step, you know, like there's definitely a feeling of accomplishment around some of these tasks. So it's really amazing to have those opportunities available. Definitely. That's very tangible. And imagine these, these girls, these women are coming in from all around the country, right? They are. I think, you know, obviously, um, Bishop, we tend to have more West coast folks and in Chattanooga, we tend to have more East coast folks, but we do have people kind of coming from all over. I often hear conversations about, I wanted to use the acronym DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, but now I've learned about this new one, JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversion, and uh, excuse me, Diversity and Inclusion. So I'll use that for the rest of the conversation. Um, I, also, I often hear conversations about JEDI and an organization's mission, but they, like all these organizations now are trying to incorporate this more into their work but they don't know exactly how to do it. I see this being a roadblock for some. Is there any advice you could give them to try to incorporate incorporate this more into their work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, a really exciting new topic that has kind of, that I definitely didn't see many people, many folks talking about 
uh, maybe f- you know three or four years ago when I first started working in the outdoor industry, yeah. and to see it be an active topic kind of in the mainstream area is really really exciting. And I think uh, one of the challenges of it is that um, we are all kind of figuring it out still, right? And we are trying to see what works and what doesn't, and and trying to also understand that it isn't uh, that there is a spectrum, right? And that uh, within the DEI work, the the folks that you are trying to champion for uh, underrepresented groups, that not everyone's experiences are the same or their challenges are the same. Mm-hmm. I think that makes it uh, a fairly complex uh, goal, right? Right. And um, I think what I would give in terms of advice, I think the bi- the best advice that I can give to any organization or company who really sincerely wants to incorporate more Jedi principles um, into their company, uh, you know, interior as well as exterior facing, is to partner and work with grassroots groups and uh, organizations that are already doing that work on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, they really are the experts with the the with the underrepresented groups and what the challenges that they're facing on the ground are. And I think there are a lot, and you know, there are more um, like consulting firms that are coming up. Mm. And I think it would be to uh, work with those firms, especially if they are owned and operated by um, folks from underrepresented groups, whether it be people of color or queer folks or, um, or women and um, working with them. And I guess the last thing would be to uh, make sure you have a line item in your budget for to pay these people, right? Mm-hmm. I think we wouldn't have an expectation for someone to help us with like uh, a marketing campaign or a public relations campaign without um, expecting that we would pay them. And I think we need to make sure that we have those same expectations around this work, that folks should be compensated for their time. Right, yeah, makes sense. I liked what you said. There's a range. There's not just ubiquitous issues across every group. Yeah. Making sure that you differentiate depending on who you're working with is really important, right? Yeah. And I think one last thing is like to be ready to make mistakes. Sure. Um, and and be ready to admit, you know, and be okay with that. I think there is a challenge. It can be really challenging to try something and then feel like it totally backfired. And I think um we need to expect that because it would be very impressive if we could figure it all out. Then, you know, why would we, why wouldn't we have already figured it out so quickly? Right. I think it's right. going to be a work in process and to be ready to put um, kind of that long-term commitment into that work. Sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I only see this, these voices getting louder and stronger, so got to keep at it. Sorry everyone for interrupting our regularly scheduled program here. But I wanted to make our final announcement for the 2019 Annual Advocate Summit coming up here in a couple weeks in Seattle. Tickets for the workshops are officially sold out now, so I'm sorry if you did not get any, but not all is lost. The tickets for the celebration dinner on the evening of Saturday, October 12th, are still still available, and they will be available until October 4th one week prior to the start of the whole summit. So the dinner is on the 12th. Tickets will be available till the 4th. So be sure to get on those because I'm sure those will sell out as well. And I cannot say enough good things about the celebration dinner. It is complete with amazing food, libations, 
amazing items that you can bid on in the live and silent auctions. And then of course our amazing keynote speakers as well. I'm a pretty introverted person, believe it or not, and I always find a way to meet some new folks, chat with new folks, and just enjoy the evening. So if you haven't got your tickets yet, get on that ASAP. Now back to the conversation with Shama. All right, well, I want to switch gears a little bit to uh, your your tenure as a board member for the Access Fund. You said you've been in the position for two and a half years now, and you just got back from D.C. with a bunch of other Access Fund staff and board members and with the American Alpine Club. Could you give us a recap on how this year's Climb the Hill went? Yeah. Um, so just to give a little bit of perspective on Climb the Hill, I think this is our fourth year doing Climb the Hill, but this mm-hmm. is the third year where it's become a much larger event with um, advocates and key members of our um, of our community from all over the country coming and meeting with uh, their elected officials, elected members. And so this is my third year here. And I have to say, I'm so impressed with the, the way that, um, you know, Eric Murdoch, the policy director of Access Fund yep. and uh, his equivalent at the American Alpine Club have worked over the last three years to continue to take feedback from folks and really incorporate it and make each year a more effective and better experience for everybody. And I think one of the most exciting things about this year was the JEDI Task Force So over the past year, I've been co-chairing JEDI, once again, that stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force. Um, I've been co-chairing it with another board member from the American Alpine Club. And what we were able to do is bring together, uh, I think it was six members, six other members of our community that are actively working in the JEDI space in climbing. And um, that included Bethany Lebowitz from Brown Girls Climb, Mikhail Martin from BOC Crew, um, Maricela Rosales from Latino Outdoors and several other folks. Um, if you are interested, you can definitely check out the website. You know, there's a recent blog post on the Access Fund blog uh, with information for that. But, um, you know, these amazing folks who are already really busy doing this work volunteered their time to really... Um, see how we could organically and intentionally incorporate DEI JEDI principles into our event. And um, our goals were twofold. Our goals were one, to to put a JEDI lens on some of our policy asks and the themes around that. So not just talking about conservation as it relates to maybe climate change or access to climbing, but really thinking about it also through an, you know, uh, a Jedi lens and thinking, for example, that um, climate change and, and negative environmental impacts tend to uh, affect uh, lower income communities first, right? right. And yep. so that it is something really key that we need to be thinking about. Um, so that's just one example. The second was that, you know, we are there and there's only like maybe, you know, 40 or 50 of us. And we're there to represent an incredibly large and diverse community of climbers and just ensuring that we are um, we are equipped with the information and vocabulary to make sure that we're talking about climbing and the climbing community in an inclusive way or the most inclusive way that uh, possible. Right. And so those were kind of our two goals coming into Climb the Hill this year. And I think that it was a really great start. By no means are we finished with this work, but I think I feel very proud of what was accomplished and looking forward to seeing how we can continue to build on that uh, in the coming years. 
Awesome. So you're meeting with elected officials to discuss this topic and it was well received. Yeah, I think it, uh, so I, so we all break up into different groups. And so mm-hmm. I am a resident of New York state. So I, I'm on a, I was on a New York team with other New York residents and we met with, uh, New York state specific, um, elected officials, uh, senators and representatives. So I think, you know, different folks have different experiences depending on if, um, what kind of, uh, elected members they have and what the issues are in their states. Mm -hmm. And that's just how like the whole climate hill group, is that how everyone kind of disperses and does their respective advocating with their state specific? I think it's states or regions. Some places it's more regions. And then there are some specific um, teams around themes, such as climate change, who go and and talk very, very uh, specifically and in detail about some of potentially the bills that are very related to some key issues that we're advocating for. Um, But yeah, I think that that really, you know, just a quick tip for folks, you know, the biggest impact that you can make at the federal level with elected members is to write to the ones that represent you. They definitely um, respond much more effectively if you are a constituent, a voting a voting constituent in their uh, district. So, mm-hmm. um, and you writing a letter matters, um, especially if you write a handwritten letter and send it to their district office. Uh, I met with a representative last year from upstate New York who told me he had gotten all these letters about uh, about federal lands and public, you know, federal lands as public spaces out on the west, western part of the states, which aren't even included in, um, obviously, in New York State, we don't have that much federal public land there. Right. Yep. Um, but in uh, that he had noticed that he had gotten a large number and wanted to hear and learn more about it. So even if you're in an area that uh, necessarily, if you're in a state that doesn't include public lands, uh, your Congress folks are still going to D.C. and voting on measures that affect federal lands, which it doesn't really matter whose state it is in, right? It's mm-hmm. all of our land. Right. So you sending those letters, they do make a difference. And I would highly encourage folks to do that. Yeah, it can be so in- intimidating, I think, and hard to get involved or feel like it's hard to get involved and feel like you don't make a difference or something. And I, I saw so many posts about how Climb the Hill recently just like opened some of these athletes' eyes, like, wow, these people are more accessible than you think. And to put forth the effort to advocate for what you're passionate about, I mean, it it, it helps, and that's they, they're here to work for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, would like to echo that. Encourage folks to write, to call, um, any any way possible it will be effective and help. So yeah, some other focus areas for Climb the Hill was like ad- adequate agency funding and balance use between recreation and resource extraction. I mean, did you have anything to do with those, or are you pretty focused on like the Jedi with the Jedi lens going to talk to New York folks? No, I think we're definitely thinking about things as broadly as possible. Mm-hmm. And there are several active bills out right now that potentially could be voted on uh, during this session. Um, and, you know, I think that they are bills that can have a Jedi lens, but also other lenses as well. So for example, um, Recreation Not Red Tape is a bill that's out there to help simplify the permitting system to get uh, access to federal lands, um, especially for larger groups. And I think that that can affect a lot of different folks mm-hmm. who are trying to get out there and are finding barriers to it. And I think it can particularly, for example, affect people 
who might be coming from, you know, more urban areas that are unfamiliar with the permitting process and find it as um, as an intimidating roadblock to getting folks outside who might not have been outside before. Right. Um, I think, you know, the LCW, uh, the LWCF, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, that is a fund that um, takes uh, money from oil resources offshores and um, gives that money not to only national, but state and regional uh, funding for parks and open spaces. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's a really big, important bill. There's an, there was another bill talking about kind of the backlog of uh, repairs and maintenance for U.S. Forest Service and the national park system. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of these bills, they do have specific parts of it where we can talk about it with the Jedi lens, but also would be important um, and relevant to anybody who wants to get out and use public lands. Right. Yeah, the, the LWCF yeah, has been just historically largely underfunded. I think it's what mm-hmm. only I think fifty percent or something like that funded over the years. Yeah, but I did. I think I did see that Secretary Bernhardt just allocated like a hundred and seventy or something million dollars to the Park Service to fix stuff up, which is using those kind of, using those LWCF funds, which is a great start. But I think yeah, some more work definitely needs to be done there to get some permanent funding moving forward. Back to the the Jedi conversation, I've read that the population is projected to be a minority majority by like 2040, I think. And that could be pretty alarming for the future of sustainability, sustainability and conservation if the minority groups now are not valuing our public lands and outdoor spaces and also the youth right now not uh, having these values instilled in them early on. You know, it could be pretty alarming moving forward. So what level of importance, I mean, do you see on engaging the youth and minority communities to sustain the environmental movement moving forward? I mean, I think to me, it's a little bit twofold. Um, I wouldn't say that the the narrative that, you know, we need these people to help us save public lands is my number one priority. I would mm-hmm. say that um, that sits very closely with the kind of idea that, like, um, everyone should have access to pri- to public land and to the outdoors. So right now what we're facing is that due to a lot of different barriers, whether it be um, a financial barrier or a cultural barrier, you know, not maybe not knowing anybody who has been outside and finding that to be a really hard place to access without more resources and information or guidance mm-hmm. can be a really challenging reason why folks can't get outside. You know, I think it can, so I think, I think it's a two-step process where kind of people's investment in public lands comes second, right? Mm -hmm. So the first part is, hey, there are a bunch of people who've never even been able to access these public lands. These are federal lands. These are supposed to be all of our lands, and they haven't even had a chance or even know what is there and that they have um, a a right to go there and be enjoying those places, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I was on the Senate reception panel this year at Climb the Hill. And one of the examples that I kind of gave was that the feeling that I had when I heard that the Great Barrier Reef is dead and thinking, wow, I never got to go see that and I never will. And that opportunity is lost forever. And I think, you know, I really want to try to avoid that kind of possibility for a lot of folks, especially around some of the amazing public lands that we have here in the States. And make sure that people have the opportunity to go out there and explore it. And maybe it won't be their thing, but at least they'll have a chance to determine that for themselves. And I think, but I think for a lot of people, they'll realize that 
it, it could be their thing and they do love it and that it's healing. You know, there's a lot of studies around, you know, access to the outdoors, helping with health and depression and a lot of other things as well. So yeah, right. I think getting folks out there first um, and even thinking about how are they going to get out there is the most important question. And then that kind of leading to, well, the more folks who have access, the more they're going to understand the value of these places and be able to advocate for it. Perfect. Yeah. I, can't, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Do you think it's got something to do with marketing? I feel like when I think of the outdoors, I think of these big, beautiful mountains and, and desert landscapes. I mean, when you're, when you're trying to relate the outdoors to someone who doesn't think about the outdoors in that way, do you think there's some disconnect there? Or do you think there's some kind of different like marketing that needs to happen to be able to make it more relatable? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for a lot of folks, for example, in New York City, when they think of the outdoors or being outdoors, it might mean something like um, having a big barbecue at their local neighborhood park. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or um, going for a bike ride along the river, um, riverside here, you know, on uh, the Hudson River, the East River in New York City, or going to maybe one of the larger parks here, like Prospect Park. And so, and having, you know, a picnic. So I think, you know, Absolutely, these wild and remote places are really important. But I think if we want to get people feeling like they are a part of our outdoor community, we need to acknowledge that there are different ways to uh, identify the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And also, I think that you don't need all these tools, these really specific tools, right? I think the marketing tells you, oh, if you can't get outside and you're not wearing like hiking pants or hiking boots or, you know, you have trekking poles and you're not really outdoors. Like, you know, if you're only on land that requires these kinds of equipment, that's when you're outdoors. And I think uh, we need to continue to change that narrative as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it just goes back to what you were saying earlier about a a spectrum or range. It's not the same, same issue or same, uh, yeah, marketing across the board. You got to be be aware of the group you're talking to and, and make it relevant and relatable. And um, I think what you're doing is just one component of the Jedi conversation. Your work is a lot, you know, mainly I think with women, right? I mean, you do work with other uh, minority groups and stuff, but with the Flash Foxy and the climbing festivals and stuff, it's very women focused and you're certainly doing your part, but there's, you know, there's all kinds of diversity focused groups out there now. So I, really commemorate your, your work, your dedication. It is just fantastic. Thank you. And I do just want to mention that, um, you know, we're really working to talk about intersectional feminism um, in Flash Foxy and the Women's Climate Festival, kind of in this space altogether. So um, not just thinking about, I think, you know, it's the idea of intersectional feminism is that if we want to be lifting women up, we need to be addressing all the problems that they're having and sure. all the challenges, sure. not just the ones related to being a woman. So the kind of recognizing that if you are a woman of color or maybe a trans woman or um, an indigenous woman, the challenges that you're facing may not be specifically related to being a woman, but we should still be thinking about and addressing those problems. Mm-hmm. And so I think it is all connected and we need to be thinking about it that we can't be working in silos, but we need to all be working together um, to, to achieve the goals that we have. Sure. Yeah. I think a lot of what we talked about is participation breaking down barriers to participation and getting folks outside and engaged. I also think there's this level of, of leadership, getting folks to realize that or for minority groups to realize that it's possible to hold a leadership role 
in there, wh- whether that be their local community or even encouraging them that it's possible to hold a role like all the way up to the Secretary of Interior, everything in between. Do you see that at your at your events and, and other things you participate in, this, this uh, level of leadership? I mean, I would probably flip the script a little mm-hmm. bit, Peter. I would say more than like that my that underrepresented groups need to know that there are leadership opportunities i think those leadership opportunities need to be made available to them oh, of course you know i think like historically those kinds of positions have not been available and that you know we have a lot of unconscious and implicit biases um around who we hire and who we put in those positions and oftentimes it's really easy for us to connect with the people who are most similar to us because it's the easiest for us to relate of course. and i think that those are the kind of things that we need to be um, conscious of and making more intentional decisions around uh creating space for um underrepresented leaders to come out and um, take up these positions yeah for sure well i i only see it growing like you, like you just said this these conversations weren't happening I don't think a few, just a matter of a few years ago, and it's becoming much more embedded in, in everything involving the outdoors. It's very, it's part of this fabric of, of, of the outdoor industry. And I see it all the time now. So I think the co- this conversation has been quite powerful. And like I mentioned earlier, I, I only see this Jedi voice getting louder and stronger. So I'm really excited to see how all of your work and everyone else's work continues to grow. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited too. And I would just encourage folks to definitely um, do research. Uh, Don't wait to necessarily be taught. Like, you know, um, there's a lot of resources already available online um, around some of this work. I think Avarna Group is a really great example um, of somebody who's doing really great work. The CEO Diversity Pledge started by Teresa Baker, um, the Diversify Outdoors Coalition. These are all really great resources to um, find out a little bit more and uh, build up your uh, knowledge around some of these topics. Okay. Thank you so much, Shoma, for having that conversation with me. I'm really impressed by the work you're getting done, and I'm sure everyone else is as well. And I'm just, I'm really, I'm kind of at a loss for words and just really floored to think that we have rock climbers in Washington, D.C., advocating for rock climbing with our nation's policymakers. I can't believe those words just kind of just came out of my mouth. I'm really just really impressed. I'm really impressed by the millions of people that took to the streets this past week advocating for smart policy, for climate change. It's, it's all of it is just, it's really capturing me. And I'm, I'm just, yeah, just just floored, just blown away. It's, it's fantastic. This is all just being so deeply ingrained into the fabric of of the environment and the conservation in the conservation field it's I'm, I'm i'm blown away it's 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 awesome i can't wait to see what comes next and i hope you all enjoyed this conversation i don't really have much else to say this was just a real a real eye-opening experience for me talking to shelma and i'm going to be more aware about some things moving forward and now that I'm getting more educated on more DEI uh, topics and, and whatnot. So I hope everyone took something away from this. And I hope to have another conversation about DEI or JEDI, whatever acronym you typically use. But this will not be the last conversation we have about this topic on the Climbing Advocate podcast. So stay tuned for more and I will see you all next month.